friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. Did you guys see the name of the, the, the message? Yeah. I think, if I'm right, Nike, I think that's uh, Alex, where are you? That's Alex's idea, right? Naming and shaming. Is that right, Alex? All right, because we're talking about shame and its impact on us as, as Christians. And um, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, though. 2 Kings chapter 5, it's an Old Testament text. And in this, um, the work of Jesus, even before, even in the Old Testament, is still so beautiful. So I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 5, and then Nike is going to come. Um, and give us the good news of Jesus in this. This is the Holy Scripture. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, that's the little girl, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, quote, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God, killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease, recognizing that he's only picking a fight with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me. And he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself, he'll surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So, I, so he turned and he left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God and stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, in whose presence I stand, I will not accept it. But Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Naaman responded, If not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, 
For your servant will, long, will no longer offer a burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to another God but the Lord. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimmon to bow and worship while he's leaning on my arm, I will have to bow in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow to the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this. So he, that's Elisha, said, go in peace. And after Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, hmm, my master has let this Aramean, Naaman, off lightly by not accepting from him what he brought. And as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, is everything all right? Gehazi said, it's all right. My master has sent me to say, quote, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing. But Naaman insisted, please accept 150 pounds. He urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. Naaman gave them two of his attendants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and deposited them in the house. Then he dismissed the men, and they left. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. He replied, your servant didn't go anywhere. And my heart didn't go when the man got down from his chariot to meet you. Elisha said, is this a time to accept silver and clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, flocks and herds, and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence diseased, resembling snow. This is the Holy Scripture. Let me pray. Father, um, as Nika comes forward to explain these, these good words from your Holy Scripture, give her freedom and liberty in Jesus. And Lord, may the words of Nika's mouth and the meditations and conversations of all of our hearts and minds be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, I can't take any credit for Naaman and Shaman. I told my roommate I was going to do Naaman, and she immediately, that just first thing came out of her mouth, and I said, well, that's the title. So I like it, though. Actually, at one point I said, Shaman and Naaman. She goes, no, that doesn't sound better than Naaman and Shaman. And I was like, okay, why? And she says, because it sounds like Naaman and Clayman, which is not one of our philosophies here. But uh, anyways... It's a really fascinating story in 2 Kings 5. This is a really interesting story in the Bible because it's a story about a very foreign and very great commander. And it's, it's odd where it takes place in the book of 2 Kings, and I'll kind of unpack that. Um, but we've been talking, if you've been with us, we've been talking about shame and hope and vulnerability and what we can learn from the Scriptures and from the Lord. And I think this story has a lot that it can teach us about shame, humility, and vulnerability. And so um, I'm excited to jump in. So just to give you a picture of where we're at in the whole story of Scripture when this story comes along. You know, you've got all of Israel. You've got creation, fall, flood, tower, Jake, Jake, you know, Exodus. And then all of a sudden the people come out of the Exodus and they conquer the land and yay, yay, yay. And then God says, you need to have kings among you. Now, the kings, the prophets, and the priests are all supposed to be in cahoots together. They're meant to be a three-headed leadership group that is to represent the business of Yahweh. That's what they're supposed to be. 
But by the time we get to 2 Kings, the kings are almost all entirely bad. We've got 19 kings in the north. They're all bad. And this is where the story takes place, is in the north. We've got 20 kings in the south. Eight are decent. Twelve are bad. So most of the time when you hear a king's doing something, you should be a little suspicious. And it's why characters like Elijah and Elisha stand out so much because they're godly men, these prophets of God. And they're holding on to Yahweh and what Yahweh wants, and they're often having to battle what the kings want. And so Elijah, our famous prophet, you might remember him from 1 Kings. He's the one that brings down fire from heaven, takes out the prophets of Baal and all of that stuff. He is passing on the torch to Elisha now, which is, I think, hysterical that God has a sense of humor that it's Elijah and Elisha. And every pastor has had to deal with that from all of eternity. But now it's Elisha's turn to be the prophet for Israel. And again, the prophet and the king should have been besties for the resties. They should have been one unit along with the priests at the temple. But this is a time in Israel's history that's been marked by division, by pursuit of power, by warring, by feuding, by unfaithfulness. And it's a time, the scripture that I use, they use the old biblical terms for Aram and Aramean, but it's just Syria. And this is a time where they feuded multiple times. And so it's, it's not a time of great rest and great goodness for Israel. And so Elisha is often being the voice to speak out against what's happening where he's at. And it's because the leaders, like the king of Israel, are not doing their job. And so it's a fascinating story that so much of it gets focused on Naaman because he's not an Israelite. He's not one of us in the story, and yet the whole camera shifts away from Israel over to this foreign guy and tells us really interesting things about him. And so we have dignitaries, kings, servants, prophets, which is also odd. There's over 10 people in this story, which is not normal in biblical stories. Usually there's one, two, maybe three characters, often God presiding above, but we have a lot of different people playing interesting parts in this story. And so, what are we going to learn from this story? Because it's really fascinating. I think, there's a, I think this is one of those stories you can squeeze it and juice will come out. You can squeeze it again and more juice will come out. There's so much I cannot pack into this morning. But I'll finish it at lunch and we'll be here until nightfall. But, I'm just kidding. But the story, if you, if you saw, it starts with Naaman's name. Naaman which is really important in Hebrew syntax. You can start, and Hebrew and Greek are different languages than English. English, the subject goes at the front. You're, you're looking for who's doing the action. In Hebrew, you can move things around. You can put the verb at the front. You can put different things at the front. But whatever you throw to the front of the sentence is the most important name. So the writer of the story is like, I want you to focus on Naaman. He goes first. And then the writer of the story goes to great lengths to just tell us how spectacular Naaman is which is odd because he's a foreign commander. We really shouldn't care by this point in 2 Kings what's going on in other countries. And so it says, hey, name it. He's a commander. He's important. He's highly regarded. He's victorious. And it tells us he's victorious because God, our God, gave him victory. Odd. We don't have time to unpack that. He's valiant. He's a warrior. Naaman, mighty. I mean, it's just, it goes to great lengths in that first paragraph to tell you this guy's the dude. And then the last word in the Hebrew of that paragraph is leper. Naaman, great, mighty, warrior. This guy's the dude. And all of a sudden you're supposed to go, ugh, when you get to that word leper. Now, that word leper, if you saw in the CSB, it actually just says a skin disease. Because the problem is, is the word leprosy today is a very serious medical condition. Um, it can often cause those who have it. It's a devastating, painful disease. It can cause folks to lose limbs. It's highly contagious and medically very serious. 
that's not the leprosy necessarily of the scriptures. Leprosy is a catch-all word in the Bible that just means any number of skin conditions. Now, some can be very serious and medically significant. Others can just be something that plagues the person. And so for Naaman, his issue is probably not medically that serious. He's a great and mighty commander, and he gets to go in and meet with his king all the time. If he's highly contagious, if he's got open sores, he's not meeting with his king. Most likely what it is is just what the end of the story tells us. He's a man who lives in the Middle East, but his skin is entirely white. So he stands out. Naaman's issue is not that he's medically serious. It's that he probably carries a stigma from his white skin. Naaman, most definitely, in a world that cares about status and prestige and shame and honor, the last thing you want to be in one of those cultures is an other. You don't want to be an other. And so Naaman is this guy who's no matter how great, no matter how mighty, no matter how many wars he's won, no matter how many deadlifts he can do, that guy still has leprosy. And most, doubt, most of the likely has great shame from it. And it's not a shame he can hide. It's his entire skin. And so he walks around knowing that he's different. When he catches his reflection in the mirror, he knows that he's different. No matter how great he is, no matter how many victories he's won, no matter how many adjectives that first paragraph gives us, he's a leper. And if you've ever been an other, you know what that's like. Have you ever walked into a room and somebody's voice trails off and you caught the end of it and you know, oh, the guy with the white skin, yeah, oh, hey, 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 Naaman, right? Or we as a society, we often reduce people to just like one category. Who are you talking about? Oh, so-and-so? Oh, the chick? She's, she's more than that, yes, but if that helps, yeah. For me, it's always ponytail. I just, I'll just give it to you. It's always just ponytail. But we do this. We just like other people. We name them by the things that make them distinct. And then we feel shame from that. And, and we shouldn't. Like, listen, there is no shame if you have a disability or a weakness. There should be none. But we as a society, we have failed here. And we often treat those with disabilities with mockery and ridicule or worse. Right? My, my roommate who named this Naaman and Shaman, I remember she's a uh, speech-language pathologist, and we were talking about kiddos that, are, um, that struggle through all different kinds of, maybe they struggle with autism or they struggle with different uh, neurodivergent means. And I remember we were talking one day and she goes, you know, Nike, one of the things that we try to really do in our field is use people first language. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, you don't say an autistic kid. You say a kid who has autism. Is there a kid first and foremost? And you want to put the person first. You want to make sure the personhood is still intact. And I thought, I think about that all the time. And I bet you Naaman just went by the leper plenty of times. Great and mighty general, and yet, because of this thing that he cannot control, he walks around with shame. So, when our little girl in the story gets introduced, who is a captive of war, mind you. This means Naaman came into Israel, beat up on some Israelites, and then took a little girl from her family, took her back to Syria, and said, Hey, wife, she's your servant now. She shows up on the scene. We should be going, Oh, man. This is weird. And then she says, hey, by the way, there is a person that can heal you. And immediately Naaman wastes no time. We, the story goes from her telling her mistress to somehow Naaman is in front of his king. We don't get the game of telephone because Naaman wants to be healed so quickly. Now listen, Naaman doesn't listen to this little girl because he's humble. We learn later in the story he's not humble at all, right? He's not humble. He's desperate. Why else would a great and mighty general listen to a little foreign girl? You're either humble, which we know he's not, or you're desperate. 
And we see this because of his action later. And doesn't shame have a way of doing that to us? Doesn't shame often make us desperate? You can, you can get this sense that this little girl is coming from a foreign land. She's like, I know someone that can heal you. And he's like, I'll do it, whatever it is. And shame does that to us, right? We'll do desperate and selfish things to release ourselves from the shame. You mess up, you'll do whatever you can to fix it as quickly as you can. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry right? Or you start calling people to try and get the story out ahead, right? Somebody makes a mistake, and the first thing that happens, you're on a PR campaign. Oh, it wasn't that bad. It didn't do it. We do all these crazy things when we feel shame because we're desperate to make the shame go away. We run. We hide. Desperation takes us pretty far. We see Adam and Eve. They blame each other. They hide. Peter denies Jesus. We hide. We minimize. And in the case of Naaman, he listens to a little slave girl, which he really shouldn't be doing unless he's humble. His greatness is contrasted with her nothingness, but when you're desperate, you'll do anything. But I want you to notice what happens next. She says to Naaman, there's a prophet in Israel that can save you. He goes to his king, and his king gives him enough money to buy Israel. It's an absurd amount of money. He's like, hey, okay, you need to get saved. Here we go. Over the top response. And now we've got diplomacy taking place. I'm going to write a letter as the king of Syria to the king of Israel and give enough money to either shame or bribe them. And we're going to make this happen for you, Naaman, because this is how we do business. This is how we get things done. And the king writes this letter, and they think that diplomacy and pomp and circumstance is what's going to win the day. They're like, hey, you have a problem. We are great men. Great men know what to do. Let's go be great together and get this problem solved. But the little girl didn't say there's a king in Israel that can save you. She said there's a prophet. And these great men think they can do great things to get them what they need. And so what happens next literally cracks me up. You're meant to laugh. Naaman shows up, palm, circumstance, chariots, and he rolls in. He's like, hey, remember when I beat y'all up last month? (laughs) Here's the letter. And the king of Israel reads the letter, and he's just like, ah! He's like, you guys are you're going to kill me, aren't you? This is a joke. Why are you coming to me? Am I God? I can't cure you. And he thinks that this is a Trojan horse so that they can come in and take him out. It's selfishness through fear. What he should have seen, because he's supposed to be God's representative, is he should have seen a desperate man who needs healing and wants help. That's what he should have seen. But instead, he thinks about himself, and he sees a potential invader, and he moves immediately to despair, an overwhelming top response to it. He cannot say... Naaman's wearing his leprosy. Maybe he actually wants to be healed from it. It's not like he's normal, typical, and then he's like, oh, are you sure you have a... He's standing there in front of the man wanting to be cured, and all the king of Israel can think is, I can't do this for you, and now we're going to go to war. And what he should have seen as a man of God is someone who's desperate for healing. And you know what? He should have known Elisha can do it. At this point, Elisha's already brought a dead man back to life. He's already fed the multitude. He's already multiplied the oil and kept things going. He, Elisha can do any of this. And he should have said, oh, hey, I can't do it, but there's a guy in Israel. But since they're not besties for the resties, he doesn't even think in those categories. He doesn't see a vulnerable man. Instead, he's like, you're trying to kill me. Now, Elisha, because he's a man of God, he's like, look, just bring him to me. I'll take care of this. And so again, these great men want to do great things, and none of these great men can do anything. And Elisha's like, you guys are just silly little goose, geese. And so Elisha goes to, or Naaman goes to Elisha, which is what the little girl said in the first place. He could have hopped on a horse, ridden into Samaria, met with Elisha, and been home by supper. 
But no, we've got to do what great men think will bring about greatness. And I'm not saying men as in males. I'm saying men as in people. So Elisha hears of it. And Naaman, again, our desperate leader, he heads to Elisha. But notice he still comes with pomp and circumstance. It tells us horses and chariots. I've got a problem, but I also have power and money. So what do you need, Elisha? Will my power or my money fix this for me? And Elisha, who's the coolest dude in all of Scripture, I'm starting to think, he doesn't even meet with them. Like, how bad is that? He's like, you're going to show up with your horses and your chariots? I'm just going to send a servant out to you. I mean, can you imagine? And Naaman's like, are you kidding me? You know how many times I've beaten y'all in war? Look at my horses. You see them? They're out there neighing out front. You come out here and meet me face to face. And you can tell Naaman is ticked because he's like, you were supposed to come out and do a great and mighty thing for me. And Elisha's like, no. Just go bathe in the river, my dude. And Naaman gets hot. He insults the rivers. He's like, I could go bathe in those rivers. And you can imagine they're like, but it, you have, and it didn't work. <laughs> Naaman's mad. Don't you know who I am? I'm a great man. And he expects his greatness to be rewarded with pomp and circumstance, his arrogance, his anger, his selfishness through fear. It's all on display. And servants have to save the day again. And the servants come to him and they say, Naaman, Naaman, if he'd have told you to do a great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he'd have told you to climb the highest mountain, fight the biggest bear, right, wrestle the biggest, wouldn't you have done it, Naaman? And of course, you can imagine Naaman being, well, yeah. Then do the small thing, Naaman. Just go in the river. We came all, just go in the river, Naaman. And you know what's amazing? That he does it. Great men, great people want to do great things. But will great people do the humble thing? That's the true measure of greatness in this story. Naaman's a great man, and he wants to do a great thing, and his small and lowly servants have to remind him, it is not your greatness that's going to save you, Naaman. And so Naaman relents, and he goes in the river, and somewhere between the first and the seventh dip, he's a new man. Not only is his leprosy gone, the source of his shame is gone, but so is the pomp and the circumstance. Naaman is transformed in that Jordan River. Naaman is baptized in that river into a new man. It's a wild change. To go from the first paragraph Naaman to that snow, like, like young child boy that's no longer snow white coming out of the river. It's an amazing story. Which brings me to my so what of the Naaman and Shaman for us today. Desperation will take you pretty far, but humility and faith will actually save you. Desperation will only take you so far. Naaman was a desperate man. He would have done whatever it took to get saved until someone asked him to humble himself. And then he was ready to quit. And look who shows up. It's the lowly servants who we don't even get their names. And they said, Naaman, just go bathe in the river. His desperation took him pretty far, but it's his humility and his faith that ultimately saved him. When we feel shame, we'll do anything we can to get rid of it often, but the thing that's most humble. We want to do something big to get rid of it, but often it's the small, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I messed up, I shouldn't have done that. That's often what will save us. Naaman's desperation, it is admirable. He clearly wants to be healed. But as a great man who wants to do great things, he has to learn the greatest thing he ever did was humble himself. And that's a lesson he takes with him. 
And so, look, shame makes us hide, it makes us minimize, it makes us blame, it makes us lie, it makes us quit, we want to save face, it makes us do all these things. But the way through shame is actually through humility and faith. To get small enough to be honest about who we are and what we've done or what's happened to us. Power and glory and money, we like to throw those at problems to make them go away, but that's the predatory piece we've talked about, and it'll fall apart. You put a Band-Aid over these things, it'll fall apart. If you actually are healed because you've surrendered to God, then you'll find the healing that you've been so desperate for. When we tell the truth about what really happened, either what we did or what happened to us, then we find true healing. Often, what isn't named can't be healed. But if we'll name these things, if we'll say, hey, this is, this is it, I'm a great and mighty man, but I have this leprosy and there's nothing I can do about it. And Elisha, I'm told you can heal. And Elisha says, go bathe in the river. And he says, okay. And he's healed. Naaman comes out of that river with skin like a little boy. And it's meant to hearken you back to the little girl, to remind you that it was the humble one who brought him healing in the first place. And it's to remind you, those are the only kind of people that enter the kingdom of God as the childlike people. To have this skin like a child harkens back to not only the girl, but it points forward to this is what the kingdom of God is like, is those who will come with humility and faith. Those are the ones that are always in the kingdom of God. So it's an amazing story, and it should have ended there. The story should be like, yep, we're good. We're moving on with Israel, but our story doesn't end there. Naaman returns to Elisha, but this time no blustering, no pomp, no circumstance. And in fact, he, he tells Elisha, I'm your servant. This great man is humbled so much, he's using this subservient language. No shame, no greatness, no ego, just humility and gratitude and willing to offer all of these great rewards, but not as a bribe or manipulation this time, just because he's grateful. And Elisha, being a man of God, doesn't want people to think the gifts of God can be bought. So that's why he says, no, hey, the gifts of God are free. You don't pay off a prophet and get your healing because that's going to create all kinds of problems. We're not profit for hire. There's plenty of prophets doing that. That's the problem. That's corruptible. So he sends him on his way. And then Gehazi. Oh, Gehazi. Just, just hang out with Elisha, Gehazi. Don't, don't get involved. But our story goes on. A few weeks ago, we talked about the antidote to shame is often vulnerability, right? In order to no longer feel shame, we have to be open and honest about who we really are and what we've done. And Gehazi sees a very vulnerable Naaman. Naaman's been believing in Yahweh for about four minutes. His entire world has been turned upside down. He's no longer a leper. He has a brand new faith to the point that he's carrying mule loads of dirt back to Syria so he can worship Yahweh and be the only one worshiping Yahweh there. He is vulnerable. He doesn't know come from Sikkim, as they say. And I once heard Gary Haugen of IJM, International Justice Mission, say there's two kinds of people in this world when they see vulnerability. The first kind is they seek to protect it. This person's vulnerable, let's try and protect it. The second kind is they seek to exploit it. And with all due respect to Gary Haugen, I, I think he's probably right, but the reality is I think if we're not careful, we actually can fall in either of those camps. Because Gehazi has been near vulnerability before and didn't exploit it. He was there when the little boy was brought back from the dead. He's seen Elisha do amazing things for those who are vulnerable. But this time it's different. Because Naaman's not one of them, right? Naaman owes them this time. And so Gehazi, even though he's seen some things, you can imagine this feeling. He sees this vulnerable Naaman, and all of a sudden he's just like, wait a minute, Elisha, I know that, I know that our gifts aren't for hire, but that guy, part of his wealth is from us. 
He's coming here. He's beating us up. He's got, for crying out loud, one of our children in his wife's cohort as his slave. Like you can almost begin to hear the justifications, right? This foreigner needs to pay. Except that he's not a foreigner anymore. He's a brother now. He's a worshiper. He's not a foreigner anymore. He's your brother now, Gehazi. So Gehazi sees the vulnerability and an opportunity to strike. He runs up. He, Naaman doesn't know. And so he's like, hey, Naaman, uh, actually, we got some prophets at our knee. Can we have this stuff? And Naaman's like, yeah, take it all. Naaman doesn't know. So Gehazi sees the vulnerability and exploits it, and he takes for himself a nice little reward. Na- Naaman's been worshiping Yahweh for 15 minutes, and he's already been swindled by one of the religious leaders. Elisha, of course, though, knows. He always knows. What are you thinking when your boss is a prophet? Like Gehazi runs back. He's like, where have you been? At that point, just tell the truth. I mean, at that point, you're caught. You already know he knows. It's like when God asks questions, he already knows. Like, where are you? And they're like, oh, come find us. He knows. So he's like, Gehazi, where have you been? And Gehazi just lies. But selfishness through fear can strike all of us. I empathize with Gehazi. I do. You could paint him as this one-dimensional bad guy, but that's not fair to the story. And that also kind of gives us an out because we think we won't be like him. But the reality is, is we can be like him. The land has been in famine. They've lost money to Syria. They have come in and taken things from Israel that belongs to Israel. You can hear the justification. He's a foreign commander. That's our stuff anyways. He owes us. We're hungry. I didn't even take it all, Elisha. I just took some of it. And don't you think he owes us? You can already hear the justification. You can understand Gehazi's point, which brings me to my second point. The first point is that desperation will take you so far, but true healing comes through humility and faith. The second point of shame is this, is you cannot fight evil with evil's weapons. You will not win. Gehazi, I hear you that Naaman's done wrong. Like, I get that he's a foreign commander. I get that he owns an Israelite girl. I get that he came with pomp and circumstance, but humility and faith saved him, and Gehazi, the same is required of you. Humility and faith, Gehazi. Naaman came with pomp and circumstance, but he left our brother. And if faith and humility is what saved Naaman, the same is what's required of you, all of you. You cannot return violence with violence. You've heard Martin say this over and over again. Gehazi is like Jonah. He's like the, the first, the ancient Israelites, when they're hearing the story about the, the sinner or the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? We don't want God to be kind to our enemies. And it makes us angry. But the only way forward is through humility, love, and forgiveness. The way of God is always humility, love, and forgiveness. And so Gehazi, in a very sad reversal, inherits Naaman's leprosy, which is a really big deal for Gehazi. It means he can't go in the temple any longer. He's now forfeited something really precious in his life. It's a wild story. It's an absolutely wild story. If you're ever in a reading plan and it's just taking you through 2 Kings, you're going to be like, that was a weird hiccup. Except that it teaches us something really big about God and shame and vulnerability. And so what's our big so what? We've been talking a lot about shame, hope, vulnerability. Uh, And in this story today, true healing was found through the prophet in Israel, not the king of Israel. It wasn't found through greatness. It wasn't found through diplomacy or a bribe. It was found through the prophet in Israel because Naaman was humbling himself enough to receive the gift 
from the prophet. There's a better prophet from Israel that's already come. That's Jesus Christ. The same thing that happened for Naaman, he needed healing and he found it because there was a prophet in Israel is the same message today. Y'all, there's a prophet from Israel. The greater prophet has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. And maybe you, like Naaman, you walk around with your leprosy and it's probably not a skin disease. But you have shame. Maybe because of something you did or because our society decided something is shameful even though it shouldn't be, or maybe because of something someone else did to you, but for whatever reason, you identify with Naaman. No matter how successful you are, no matter how good you are, no matter what you've done, at the end of that paragraph, there's that thing. For him, it's leprosy, but what's that thing that you just, it carries you? It's like a weight that just pulls you down. Let me remind you, if that's you, desperation will take you pretty far, and maybe you've been desperate to heal that shame. But the prophet from Israel, Jesus Christ, if you'll humble yourself and ask him for help, he'll take you the rest of the way. He'll bring you that healing. Jesus will heal your shame. He'll heal your pain. He'll rescue you from despair and desperation. But what it will most likely require of you is humility and faith. That you would humble yourself enough to come to the true prophet of Israel and receive what it is that he so desperately wants to give you anyways. Let's be like Naaman, not like Gehazi. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. And what a fascinating story. These events in history could have just moved on like a blip in history, but you preserved it for our good. And I love getting to mine your word and learn more about you and what you've done for others. Lord, it's so easy to feel shame, and it's so easy to allow our desperation to make us deal with it in ways that will not heal us. But if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll have faith, if we'll come to the true healer in Israel, which is your son, We may just find what we've been looking for all along. Make us like your son. Help us to be humble. Help us to be faithful. And help us to remind others that there is great healing to be had in the name of Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.